0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe.
1: Hi again, everybody, and welcome to Dialed In. I'm Tom Brenneman. As always, we thank our producer engineer, Dave Armbruster, for all his outstanding work. You know, on the first dozen episodes, uh, it's basically been the stars, right? Urban Meyer, Troy Aikman, Bob Costas, Joe Buck, Chris Spielman, Boomer Assiasen. The stars. But on this show, it's not just about the stars. It's about everyone because I've always believed, and I hope you would agree, everyone has a story. Today, our guest is Chris Welsh, my former partner on Cincinnati Reds television the last 14 years. In fact, he is still broadcasting Cincinnati Reds games. We will talk about coming up with the New York Yankees, which he did back in the 1970s playing with Ozzie Smith in San Diego, playing for a guy he grew up rooting for as a youngster in Cincinnati, Pete Rose, and we'll discuss baseball analytics. Are analytics killing the game of baseball? Chris Welsh is our guest next on Dialed In. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living With Change Center for Gender Health, serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details, or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Christopher Charles Welsh was born back in April of 1955 in Wilmington, Delaware. His family later moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, where he graduated from St. Xavier High School. He began his collegiate career at the University of South Florida. He played for Jack Butterfield. We'll get to him in a minute. But would finish his collegiate career playing for Hall of Fame pitcher Robin Roberts. Welsh was drafted by the New York Yankees not once, but twice in back-to-back years, 76 and 77. He quickly made his way through the Yankees' farm system, getting to AAA. But then in 1981, he was involved in a six-player deal and went to San Diego. His rookie season and major league debut came that same year. He won six games in a strike-shortened season, ERA in the threes, had four complete games, had two shutouts. He would later pitch for the Montreal Expos, Texas Rangers, before finishing his career with his hometown team, the Cincinnati Reds. Welsh has been the Cincinnati Reds' television color analyst going all the way back to 1993, almost 30 years ago. He's a father of five children and is the founder of BaseballRulesAcademy.com. I mentioned uh, before you came in about growing up in Cincinnati, uh, a, a great baseball town and a town that has produced so many major league players, you included. Uh, but your father, for a long time, was your coach. Indeed, and, and I remember a story you told years ago about going out there and dragging the, the the infield dirt in your in your in your dad's car and all that kind of thing. And and you know, I used to coach my kids and. I mean, from a parent perspective, it was incredible. Did you feel the same way from a kid perspective?
0: Well, no, uh, because, you know, my dad was an engineer and, and he liked everything just so you know so we would go out and early i mean really early before the games would begin we'd line the fields they had no lines they had no marks where the bases were we'd have to measure the bases um, hammer in the pitcher's plate uh, everything and then you know you'd have to drag the field as well and you know i was all in for that but the dragging the field you know there was no you know we had no riding lawnmower or tractor my dad would drag drag the field with his company car it was an old uh, galaxy 500 ford galaxy 500 and it was so dusty that we're not talking about grass infields here. We're talking about oh, dirt infields course, right. that seemed to grow rocks, right? And uh, that car would get so dusty, it looked like it spent six months out in the desert. And, of course, it was my job after the game to wash the car. Oh, of course. So I'm uh, not only am I, you know, fixing the field up, but I'm also, you know, cleaning the implements that you drag the field with. But uh, I got to appreciate it more. My dad and I uh, spent a lot of time on the ball field, even just by ourselves, um because we just liked it i mean hit me he would hit me fly balls until it was dark
1: and uh i still want more you went to saint xavier high school and for those who don't know i mean that's a school that that, that is just not only incredible academically athletically i mean they have produced nfl players major league baseball players basketball but you you name it uh it's one of the great high school athletic programs the number one high school swim program in the united states of america you go to the university of south florida you play for jack butterfield now I got to know Jack's son, as you know him as well. Brian, who's been a Major League Baseball coach seemingly forever, still is now. Um, You know, a lot of times we talk about the Major League managers or the Major League coaches or this and that. but, but, But Jack Butterfield, I can't imagine there would have been a better college coach to go play for. And I didn't know him. You did than walking out of Cincinnati and going to South Florida to play for him.
0: Tom, it was kind of a continuation of the good coaching I had here in Cincinnati. When you play uh, the upper levels of amateur baseball here, you know, from like 16 on up, nowadays it's even more so, but uh, you're getting good coaching, uh, and you're getting good repetition, and you're getting good fundamental background. And uh, you're right about Jack Butterfield. He had come down from the University of Maine, uh, to take a job at University of South Florida, and he was very organized. You know, in order to put a baseball team on the field in month in Maine, you know, in spring, sure. you've got to have your act together, and he did. And he was blessed with having a, a ton of really good players down there. He wasn't really sure how to handle the uh, kind of the wild Southern player, you know, compared to the New England or the, even the Maine uh, kid, uh, because they were. Completely different of as course. far as personalities, but I learned a ton from him. And by the way, his son, Brian, who I've gotten to know pretty well, is almost a splitting image of his dad.
1: I mean, I look at him and I have flashbacks of me being in college playing for his dad. Yeah, Brian, is he's had an amazing career as a major league coach. I'm surprised he never got a chance to be a major league yeah. manager. Um, shortly thereafter, though, before you get out, all of a sudden, Robin Roberts, Hall of Fame pitcher, uh, takes over for Jack Butterfield. How does that happen? You rarely see Hall of Fame guys. Now, I know we're going back a ways, back to the 1970s, but but, but how does that happen? Well, you know,
0: coincidentally, I was kind of involved in that right. decision. I was a, uh, I was the lone student representative on a, a panel uh, that was put together to select new coaches in the athletic department when those vacancies we're open. And uh, we selected uh, Lee Rose as a basketball sure. coach. We, we selected a couple of uh, different soccer coaches and so on. Now the baseball team has an opening because uh, Jack uh, Butterfield decided to move on and take a job with the New York Yankees. And uh, there were a number of uh, – Really good candidates that came in. Larry Bernarth was a candidate yeah. to that, and Sammy Ellis, who was a former Cincinnati Reds pitcher uh, back in the '60s, he was a candidate for that. Number of local community college coaches and so on, and of course, as a student representative, I'm on there with you know the president of the athletic, or the athletic director, and and board of regents and people that are you know I'm only a student. I didn't. What do I know? But I could tell from sitting around these committee meetings that when Robin Roberts threw his name into the hat. I mean, everybody else just came into second place. And um, for some reason, you know, he retired. He lived in Temple Terrace, uh, which was right in the community next to University of South Florida. He wanted this job. He wanted to kind of give back to baseball uh, what he got from baseball, which is teaching youth and so on. And, uh, you know, it was so wonderful to play for him. Because for a guy that was in the Hall of Fame and so naturally talented, I mean, here's a guy that I think he won 285 games. He told me that most of his games, he threw nothing but fastballs for the first seven innings. Wow. And then he would start breaking out his other stuff because you've already seen the hitters three times. And uh, so, you know, he gave this like sage, very simple advice. I remember one day he told me, he says, Lefty, you get a runner there at third base and (laughs) You know, you should do what I did. I said, well, what's that, coach? He said, you just add a foot to your fastball. Uh, and I said, well, what you're seeing right now is what I got. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> there is right. no foot left.
1: <laughs> that is funny. You know, a lot, great, a lot of great players were not necessarily great managers, coaches, teachers. He, he was a good teacher. He was a good teacher. You know, he, he probably prepared me for pro ball. I was a good
0: college pitcher. I had a really good curveball, but I, I had a kind of a funky looking delivery. I would throw across my body right. the ball would cut. And he, and I was, had a very good year, my junior year. He comes into in my senior year and he takes one look at me warming up in the bullpen very first time. And he shakes his head and he says, that's not going to work in pro ball. And I'm like, puffed my chest out. So what do you mean? You know, I have a one point something run average last year. I struck out a bunch of batters. I was this and that. And he said, I can tell you that's not going to work in pro ball. He says, you got to be able to control this side of the plate and you have to be able to control this side of the plate. And right now you can't do that. So we worked all my senior season in college on me fixing my delivery trying to get my pitches you know better command and better movement and it worked and uh that was one step for me a huge step for me uh that kind of an awakening where you know it, it kind of reminds me that it's it's i didn't know what i didn't know and and I, i'm glad that he came along to kind of point that out to me
1: you get drafted by the yankees after your junior year they draft you again after your senior year um And this is when the Yankees are getting it rolling now. I mean, they got it going on. You know, they got all the big stars. Billy Martin is there and the manager, and you got Reggie Jackson, and you got Lou Piniella, and you got Bobby Mercer and all these guys. What was that like, showing up at spring training with that operation? It was really amazing. That was down in Fort Lauderdale.
0: It was in for a long of, you know, but I was a big Reds fan, so this is about the same time that the Reds and the Yankees clash in the World Series, yep. that they were both respectively the best teams in each league, and I get down there and I look around and yeah, I mean, there's Lou Pinella <laughs> uh, uh, walking naked around the clubhouse with a, nothing but a baseball bat yeah, posing in thought. front of a, of a full-length mirror practicing his batting stance. It's unbelievable. And he would say, Lou stance number 328. And <laughs> here he is, stark naked, with a bat in his hands, practicing a brand new stance. And, uh, yeah, you got Reggie Jackson, you got Goose Gossage, you have Thurman Munson. Yeah, and yeah. And, and, I mean, it just, Tommy John was on that team, for goodness sake. I mean, the real Tommy John, yeah, right. right? And uh, it was just, it was wonderful. Uh, these personalities were incredible. Catfish Hunter, Bobby Mercer. I mean, the way these guys used to get on each other. I, I looked at this and said, "Man, this is this is what I want to do." Sure. I, I want. I don't. I don't know if I'll ever be able to to be welcomed into this particular club with Mercer and and you know Reggie Jackson and so on. But I want to be on a team where they interact like this because they loved each other. But boy, they made so much fun of each other, and it was just a
1: riot to be around. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I, you know, I, all the years that, that I've been in baseball, and thank God for him, thirty four years, and 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 you know being around the guys with a big red machine, even going back when I was a kid and I was in the locker room and, and listening to these guys get on each other and what you're talking about now with these Yankee guys, which is roughly the time, same time period in the 1970s. I just don't think the players today have as much fun with one another as they did back then. You think that's a fair statement? I
0: think it is a fair statement, Tom. I think there's more you know, pressure on them. There are more eyes on them. Maybe not more pressure, but there are more eyes on them. Everybody, There are more reporters. There are more people with cell phone cameras or people with Twitter accounts that want to, you know, blast the news about so-and-so. I'll tell you, you know, they used to pull pranks on each other, a couple of great pranks. I remember, you know, Bobby Mercer was very particular about his uh, pine tar rag. And he'd, he'd take a towel, you know, and he'd cut the towel down to a certain size and then he'd line the back of it with athletic tape so that it would have like a, a a surface that would keep the pine tar from leaking through. And then he'd pour pine tar on there. He'd get it just right, a little bit of rosin, and he'd fold that over and it would be just the right size of fit in his back pocket. So he'd, you know, take batting practice and everything. So when his round was up for batting practice, he'd lay his bat down and lay that pine tar rag right next to his bat to make sure nothing happened to it. And he figured he going to have this pine tar rag now for a week or so, right? Well, it lasted about five minutes because he would go out in the field. Lou Pinello would come in. He'd take the pine tar rag, open it up, and rub it all around the dirt and everything like that. And now it's just filled with nothing but dirt and sand. And he'd get it back. And we'd all sit in the outfield and wait for Mercer to discover sure, what Pinella sure. did. And it was a riot. It was just one thing after another like that that uh, I think baseball players, did maybe a little bit more. I think they still do to some extent inside the privacy of their clubhouse,
1: but I don't think it's anywhere near uh, as uh, as fun as it used to be. You get to AAA with the Yankees organization. Now you're involved in this trade going to San Diego. Big six-player deal, and you're a big part of that deal because you had already put together now three really good years in, in the Yankees' farm system. Um, you make your major league debut with the Padres in 1981. What do you remember about that night? Well, it was a day game.
0: Actually, it was the day second game. second game of the year. It was in San Francisco, and they had a full house. And I'd never pitched in front of that many people ever. Never even. I don't know if I, you know, I've been being in some stadiums have seen that many. And I thought, man, this is this is the big leagues. Yeah, uh, I, I was scared. Candlestick. To be honest with you. And the very first uh, batter I faced was Billy North, and he hit the first pitch I threw him, and Rupert Jones caught it against the center field fence, a candlestick, with his back to home plate. And I said to myself, <laughs> "Well, that was the leadoff hitter. <laughs> so this is going to be a tough yeah, day." Yeah, McCovey's coming up in a minute. <laughs> but uh, it turned out all right. I didn't get a win that day, but I did get my win against the Giants second time around. Now,
1: you know you had a good. That was a strike shortened season that year, if I remember right. Yeah, and I was. mean, you have four complete games. You have you have two complete game shutouts. You got an ERA into threes. And, and I got to believe you're thinking. Even though you did not have what, what somebody would say, and you admit it all the time, maybe overwhelming stuff, but you knew how to pitch. You got to be thinking, I got a chance to be a part of this this franchise and this rotation for a long time. Yeah,
0: right? and that was the whole idea for me is to keep going to the point where they're going to continue to let me to pitch. You know that that's what I wanted to do. And um, yeah, I, I was I was very you know the strike. You know everybody's going to look back and, and look at things in different ways, uh, circumstances that may have influenced their their. Career lines. Uh, the strike really uh, was happened at, at at a time when I was really I thought pitching the best baseball I had ever pitched in my entire life, and uh, and then we had what fifty four days or something off, and uh, I just didn't get it quite back uh, after that.
1: You play for Dick Williams, and, and, and I've joked a lot uh, with you on the <laughs> air when we did games together, but but you know, look, this guy took the time to to write a book. Uh, I think anybody that ever spent ten minutes around uh, Dick Williams, God rest his soul. I mean, you know, he was a uh, an abrasive, uh, often cranky, smart baseball guy, but not the easiest guy for anybody in the world to get along with. For whatever reason, uh, you and, and 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 Dick Williams did not hit it off. Why do you think that was? I mean, he uh, devoted a chapter in his book to you.
0: Yeah, I was really stunned when that happened because I was a very mediocre player. And of all the great players that he had managed throughout his career, I'm surprised that he picked on me. So I must have been a real thorny thorn. <laughs> I guess. Uh, you, you know, I think it goes back to... The first year that he came in, uh, we're getting towards the end of spring training, and I'm pitching a ball game, and uh, I basically I was late covering first base on a play that I thought the first baseman had on a line drive. I hesitated. By the time I got there, Dom Baylor was the hitter, and he slid feet first into first base at the same time that I got to first base. And um, I broke my foot. He broke my foot. So I walked back to the mound, and and uh, I did pitch to get out of the inning. I didn't know my foot was broken, and uh, got out of the inning, and started running in, and I came up kind of crippled. And he was furious that you know this injury was going to upset his plans for the rotation. And I think that was the kind of the beginning of it. And then we had an incident um, in the second year that he managed me in uh, in Pittsburgh when. We had a situation of first and third and very quick runners on base. uh, And he instructed me not to throw over to first base. Well, I'm a left-handed pitcher. I'm looking over there. And I see the runner, and I know he's going to go because I think I'm reading his poker face. And I throw over. And he threw over again. He sends Norm Sherry, the pitching coach, because we got to play on. You know, We're going to fake the second. We're going to pick the runner off third. I'm thinking, okay.
1: Yeah, last time it's that was Johnny worked. Ray at third. I mean, he's a pretty good base runner. That's <laughs> not going to happen,
0: but okay. And uh, I had made up my mind I was not going to throw to first base, but then I look over and then the, the runners got even a bigger lead than ever. And I love throwing over to first base anyhow. So I threw over, and next thing I heard the dugout before I looked over. I mean, the clipboard hit the ceiling of the dugout. His glasses came out on the field. He was fury. He was screaming at me from the dugout. And uh, I ended up uh, wild pitching the guy to second base anyway. And uh, as it turns out, I get out of the inning, come back in, and uh, he says, you'll never pitch another inning for me. Wow. And it was basically insubordination. Uh, so I thought it was unfair. I went in to talk to him after the game, tell him it was the heat of the battle, and so on. And he basically kicked me out in front of the Ryers and said, "I got nothing to say to you. You never pitch to me again." So Jack McKeon uh, dealt me to the Montreal Expos. That's how I ended up there. And it was it was very uh, it, it was a traumatic time in my life. I had never been I thought uncoachable. Um, I was a smart Alec, yes. Uh, but I learned a lesson there that, uh, you know, people can interpret things that you don't mean uh, one way. They can interpret them uh, complete another way. So you have to be clear about your intentions.
1: You know, when you came to the big leagues, and I think most people, especially younger generation people, uh, think of Ozzie Smith as a St. Louis Cardinal. Uh, but he came up with the San Diego Padres, and you happened to be there uh, with him when he uh, joined the big league club Um You had to know he was a great defensive player. Did you think he would ever become the full package player that he eventually became?
0: You know, he he had such a drive uh, that those guys like that you you can never write off. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I saw him at times. It looked like some powerful pitchers could knock the bat right out of his hands but it didn't bother him. He, he'd drop a bunt down. He'd hit the ball the other way. He'd take, you know, hours and hours of practice. He would practice in the field more than anybody I'd ever seen. And, uh, you know, he just had that drive and, and that incredible talent to be a great athlete. I mean, you know, doing backflips and sure. things like this, you know, you don't see every day on a baseball field. Uh, I knew that he was special. There's no question. And unfortunately for me, I mean, I loved him as shortstop because he was one of the best shortstops I'd ever had behind me. By the way, I also had... Davey Concepcion and Barry Larkin. Not so, bad. I mean, <laughs> Not all bad. three of those guys should or are in the Hall of Fame. And um, so, so anyway, he gets traded that year for Gary Templeton. And Templeton had had it out with Whitey Herzog. In fact, I think he got in a fistfight with Herzog, and Herzog kicked him off the team. And Jack McKeon had a deal for him and because uh, the owner of the uh, San Diego Padres, Ray Kroc, at that time, did not want to pay Ozzie Smith a lot of money because he wasn't a big-time hitter. So he said, trade Smith, we'll get Templeton in return. And I'll never forget him riding on the bus one day with the team and... and, uh, uh, you know, how guys say, oh, you're crazy. Well, you know, Templeton was talking in the back of the bus one day, and he says something, and somebody said, oh, you're crazy, Tempe. He said, that's right, and I got I got the papers to prove it. <laughs> 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 so, so, I mean, it, it, uh, we did get – you know, he was an excellent shortstop as well, but Ozzie Smith's in a class by himself.
1: You mentioned you go to Montreal, you go to Texas, and, and now you come back to your hometown team in Cincinnati, and lo and behold, Pete Rose – is the manager of the Cincinnati. Now, this is a guy, you're growing up in Cincinnati. As a kid myself growing up in Cincinnati, I mean, everybody wanted to be Pete Rose. He was the man. Yeah, they had Bench. Yeah, they had Morgan. and had all these other guys. But Pete was a different cat entirely. What was that? It had to be surreal. It was
0: surreal. I mean, we were all running the first base as youth players in Cincinnati because Pete Rose ran the first sure. base on a base on balls. Uh, you know, all of our coaches said, hey, you know, Johnny Bench has got talent. Pete Rose got no talent. Look what he's done. So you can do that, too. So he was always held out as an example of what hustle could do for you. I'll tell you how I got the. If it was not for Pete Rose, I would not have never been able to play for the Reds. Um, This was in 1986, and there was collusion in baseball. The teams were not speaking to free agents. Even released players like me are considered free agents. So I called every team. Got hung up on everywhere I went, uh, including the Reds. And now we're only a few days from spring training, and I was getting worried about trying to find a big league job somewhere. I just wanted an invite, sure. right? And uh, so I had heard that Pete Rose was taping a commercial of my old college, University of South Florida. and went up there, and in between shoots, I went over to him, and, and I said, hey, hey, Pete. And he goes, ah, Chris. Now, keep in mind that I had always pitched pretty well against Pete. And uh, so he said, hey, who are you going to be with? And I said, hey, haven't you heard I'm going to be with the Reds? And he said, really? That's great. I can't wait to see you. And I said, no, nah, Pete, that's not true. I said, I'm just kidding you. You know, I called Bill Burgers, the GM, and uh, he wanted nothing to do with me. He said, that SOB. He goes, he doesn't run that club. I run that club. He goes, you be down there at Al, Lange, uh, Al Lopez right. Field tomorrow and at 8 o'clock, and I'll have a jersey with your name on it hanging in the locker. And I show up at eight o'clock, and there's my jersey number forty-five. Be I couldn't believe it. And I, this is really where I mean, it's one thing being in the Yankee clubhouse, but it's another thing entirely when you're a hometown kid sure. being in the clubhouse of your hometown team. And there were some, still some remnants of the the big red machine on that team. Uh, Tony Perez was on that ball club. Concepcion was on that club, and of course Pete uh, was the the ringleader, being the player manager. And that's how I ended up becoming a Red. Uh, I knew I had the general manager now didn't like me very much because right. I went around him, but I got Pete Rose on
1: my side. Hey, amen to that. I I think a lot of people who don't know Pete Rose. I mean that that is that is vintage Pete Rose. If yeah. you know him, and um, the the guy's the best. You, you think he ever gets an Hall of Fame?
0: Uh, yeah, I do. Unfortunately, uh, he he probably won't be around to uh, yeah uh, to celebrate that. But he certainly. I mean, I'm I'm of the impression or, or the. You know, the the opinion when it comes to the Hall of Fame that, you know, when people say Baseball Hall of Fame, that's only part of the title. It's actually Hall of Fame and Museum. So you really can't have a museum that's inclusive unless you include, you know, things that happened in baseball. And Pete Rose happened in baseball. And you have yes, to somehow did. acknowledge that one way or another.
1: You know, a lot of guys walk out of the game and they walk into the broadcast booth. That was uh, very far from the case uh, with you. You you finished playing after the 1986 season. You don't go in the booth to 1993. You got a wife. You got kids. What are you doing in 1987?
0: <laughs> well, you know, I was doing some baseball on TV. Uh, I uh, was doing college baseball Coll- yeah, yeah, forgive me. Uh, for Sports Channel Florida, and I worked uh, – with Frank Messer, a longtime Yankee and a Chicago White Sox announcer. And I did probably 15 of those games per year. Got picked up by ESPN to do some of the regional NCAA games and so on. But still, back in those days, there weren't very big audiences watching college baseball, but I did have a tape uh, from that reason. I also was involved in a uh, company that had some other baseball players in it, uh, but it was completely unrelated to sports. It was a employee leasing company. It's kind of a payroll uh, benefits company, uh, and they were very popular in Florida at the time. And and I, uh, you know, like a baseball player that I was, I mean, I put everything I had into that. So when, when I got Took over as a, as a partner in this business. I mean, I was working 80 hour weeks. Right. I was up at 6 a.m., not coming home till 8 o'clock at night. I was traveling all over the state of Florida trying to get the business going. And I put in with the same level of effort that I did when I was tra- training to play. And I was stunned to see a lot of business people didn't do that. I mean, when 5 o'clock came around, they were going home. I'm like, where are you going? I said, we got to finish this project. Sure. She says, no, oh, I'm going home. And, uh, so it it uh, was kind of an eye opening thing for me. So when the Reds TV job became available, I, I was all gung ho to try to try to get that.
1: It's incredible. Twenty nine years you have been in the booth, uh, George Grant. Most of that year, most of those years, not a better human being that ever lived. An incredibly talented guy, and 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 boy, we think about him and see him often. Um, in recent years, analytics. Uh, I'm not going to say you are all in on analytics, but uh, to a high level uh, you're in on analytics, if that's fair to say. Um, do you think that analytics has been good for the game?
0: Well, I don't think you can break it down quite like that. I mean, it's like, it's a new discovery of how to evaluate things. I mean, so if I'm a scientist and I find a new scientific method by which I can, uh, you know, test my, uh, hypothetical theory, then, um, I'm going to need to use those tools. And I think that's all it is, is a set of tools. Uh, I don't like the way that baseball has completely embraced it and in so doing pushed people out that have good things to say about baseball and can help baseball. What I mean by that, there are so many good scouts and uh, and good baseball people that are unemployed right now uh, because they've been pushed out by younger – more, inexpensive, or more yeah, inexpensive replacements where it's a lot cheaper to hire a, a whole room full of analysts that will do their work on a computer than it is to send scouts all over the place to actually watch games and evaluate players. Uh, I think there needs to be a blend. I mean, there are some new statistical um, equations that I think are wonderful to evaluate players by. Uh, I think that the tool – and there's a couple different tools. And then the other set of tools you have are those – Analytic tools that that help you develop a better athlete. Uh, how to make somebody stronger? How to make somebody sure. be able to throw faster or have better bat speed or quicker to the to the ball in the air and so on. Those things are all really good, but I think you can't forget that baseball is a game of human beings versus human beings, and it's not being played by computers. Uh, and I think when it all comes down to it, that is the, the, the those human beings that can handle. The big moment are the human beings that are going to win the games. And it doesn't matter what the stats say. And I I, I still think that there's a – you know, Joe Torre said it became a famous line. There's a heartbeat in baseball,
1: Mm -hmm. and you can't forget it. You started a few years ago, and, man, I I watched you work on this thing, uh, morning, (laughs) noon, and night. Uh, Baseballrulesacademy.com. I I find it to be a fascinating website for people who are working. um, Because, you know, all my years doing the NFL – I would always be amazed at how frequently a head coach of an NFL team would not understand a rule, and it would end up costing him a timeout in a game, which could be huge when you come down the last two minutes of a game or the last quarter of a game, whatever it might be, how many baseball players that play the game every day it's their living, managers, coaches that don't know the rules. And then Mm -hmm. you now this website that you've created – I mean, it goes all the way down to rules at the collegiate level, rules at the high school level, and uh, to a lesser extent, even even the young kids playing. They, I mean, th- that has to be extremely gratifying, of putting that thing together and watching that thing build up. You know what it's like is you're starting to roll a snowball up the hill,
0: and like a snowball that goes down the hill, it gets bigger and bigger. Sure. And unfortunately, when you're pushing it up the hill, it gets harder and harder to push. I did. I started this really for me. Uh I I thought that it being a baseball player, I played 10 years, five in the big leagues, five in the minors, played college ball, was always kind of a student of the game. Uh, I thought I knew the rules until, you know, the first quirky situation happens on the field. We're gonna be back right after this. And I'd have 90 seconds to look up the rule in the rule book and came back and and had to tell people, you know, folks, I don't know the rule here. I don't know how many bases he's awarded, I don't know why he's out, whatever it may have been. So I decided to create a little database. Um putting slang words and phrases in and then it would connect to a certain rule. So that I could look something up easily like, you know, a uh, uh, thrown ball hits the runner, you know, and it would come up with the – so when well, I started doing that and then and I realized, man, this is a very complex rule book and it's conflicting. It's it's uh, it, it goes from one end to the other. You have to, you, have to, you have to cross-reference like three different rules to figure out one situation. So – Uh, it just got bigger and bigger. I teamed up with a couple of other people that have been um, really good to uh, to me as far as being using their their writing and their blog posts and their there articles about it. Uh, so it's become now a uh, kind of a passion for me. My wife's scratching her head saying, are you ever going to get your money back out right, of this? Right. And the chances are no. But we're getting about 3,000 people a day on the website. Uh, it's free. Uh, there is a premium section out there. But I'm really proud of it because it's helped so many people understand the rules. And and it's the one thing that I think, you know, you bring up analytics. And teams have spent so much money on their analytic departments, you know, in order to win maybe one or two extra games a year, right? Well, how many games do you win or lose by your players knowing or not knowing the rules? No doubt about it. I mean, just as recently as the 2019 World Series, Trey Turner was called for an interference play, runner's interference run into first base. And it became a big thing because it happened to be in the World Series. And he had no clue that you're not allowed to run on the other side of that white line. And that's like one of the most basic rules in baseball. And here's a guy on the biggest stage in the biggest game of his life uh, almost lost the game because um, he didn't know the rules. And and uh, so I uh, I really wish that teams would spend a little bit more time teaching their players
1: the rules, maybe grab them uh, 15 minutes out of that weight room mm-hmm. and, and, and put, put some rules knowledge in their heads. And again, that's called BaseballRulesAcademy.com. Before I let you get out of here, you know, uh, you, you mentioned your wife and asking you the question about uh, – you know, you're ever gonna get your money back out of this thing. Uh, you and Beth have been married uh, how many years now? Uh, eight years. Okay, eight okay. years. And and in recent, you know, just recently in the last year or so, uh, her mom and dad have uh, like 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 everybody that's listening to this. It, it happens eventually. You know, you, you you watch your parents start to deteriorate physically, mentally, whatever it might be. You and your wife made the decision recently that you're going to move out of your house and you're going to move in with your in-laws, her mom and dad, uh, to be there for them, as both of them at the same time are going through major, major medical issues. This is real-world stuff. Um, you haven't been in there very long, uh, but, but, but if there are people out there that are facing this same kind of situation, you would say to them what?
0: Be kind. Uh, remember kindness. You know, at the end of your life, um, things don't always go as you plan. I mean, you know, here we are, I'm in my 60s, you're in your 50s, or kids that are in their 30s and 20s and so on. And, 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 you know, death seems like something that's going to happen way down the line. But when it comes around, it doesn't always come in the plan that you expect. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody goes home one night and dies in their sleep and and you know has a great life. Uh, so in the case of my father-in-law, uh, he's been diagnosed with ALS, and uh, you know so I see this this terrible disease like etching away at his body while his mind is completely sharp. And my mother-in-law has you know some uh, some early signs of dementia. So um, there's two different issues here, but they they need attention. And I think what. Really, it comes down to in your life is relationships, uh, people, helping people. And uh, I I feel really great every day when I can spend time with my father-in-law and mother-in-law and and help them. Help them through the days because I realize, you know, this is really important stuff. Um, You know, whether you win a game or not is that important. Whether you pass your geometry test or not isn't that important. Um, You know, whether I make a few extra dollars, uh, you know, doing this job or that job is really ultimately not that important. Uh, But it's how you treat people and how you – get treated in return, and I think that, you know, the old, uh, you know, the old Beatles line of the love you give, you mm-hmm. uh, the love you get, uh, I think that's very important to keep in mind.
1: Well, all the best our thoughts and prayers with both of them, and you and your wife, and, and, and what you're doing, and uh, and thanks for the time today. It's been a lot and of fun. You know
0: what? It, it's great to be with you again, Tom. I, I tell you what, you know, I've been I've been so lucky in my career to work with really great broadcasters. And I was, you mentioned George Grant. I worked with your dad mm-hmm. uh, on TV uh, for a few years, and uh, worked with you for, what, like 12 years or so, a great 12 years. I miss you so much. Uh, I think you were dealt a very bad hand, uh, uh, selected justice. Uh, it, but, you know, it's kind of the world we live in nowadays, and and it's a it's tough, tough thing to swallow. Uh, but I know you're you're moving on as best you can, and we all have to do that.
1: Got to move on. Got to keep on rolling, You big boy. got that right, Great to boy. see you, man. Have a great season with the Reds hey, this thank year. Thank you, Tommy. Absolutely. Chris Welsh, kind enough to join us for Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Next week, uh, one of the greatest basketball games in the history of basketball, one, one of the greatest games in the history of sports, was that UCLA-Gonzaga game in the Final Four uh, a week and a half ago. Mick Cronin, ironically enough, we got Chris Welsh here this week. Mick Cronin, another quote-unquote Cincinnati guy, is going to be our guest next week to talk about that, why he left the University of Cincinnati, why he's a head coach at UCLA, and can the Bruins get back, to where they were. Thanks for joining us on Dialed In. We thank Dave Brewster as always. We thank Chris Welsh. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.